particularly as a founder entrepreneur, I think you can either excel at being like a senior person at a large organization or continue down the path of entrepreneurship. It's very, very hard to be great at both. Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Mays. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel podcast, where entrepreneurship is like surfing. Every time we fall down, we get back up and paddle right back out into the middle of it. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. In last week's episode, I talked with Patrick McGuire, a multi-time founder who's doing incredible things with SaaS and sports technology. He's all about faith, family, and friends, and has a really unique way to create company value and give back via the blockchain. We had a great conversation, so if you missed it, be sure and go check it out. Our guest this week is Armando Biondi. Armando and I actually met at a SaaS Founders Growth event in New York City. He is another amazing serial entrepreneur and angel investor in over 250 startups. He co-founded and built Ad Espresso to be the number one Facebook ads partner worldwide. It was acquired by Hootsuite, where he then served as the global head of growth. Armando is now the founder and CEO of breadcrumbs.io, the first no-code scoring engine that finds hidden revenue in companies in minutes. I mean, needless to say, he obsesses about how to accelerate revenue growth every day of every week of every month of every year. So please give it up for Armando Biondi. Today's episode is sponsored by my book, Small Fish Big Pond, building a world-class business that swims circles around competitors. So why do some companies achieve explosive growth while others sink into the depths? What do exceptional SaaS companies do that mediocre companies don't? And what can SaaS leaders learn from fish? Small Fish Big Pond delivers powerful business lessons guaranteed to change the way you view your business and includes hands-on exercises and growth tools to get lightning fast results. Get your copy today at smallfishbigpond.com. Use the code SASFUEL to unlock special bonus content. Well, hey, Armando, welcome to SAS Fuel. Thank you, Jeff. Excited to be here. Great. Well, Tell that the audience a little bit about your background and uh, and what you're up to today. Yeah, for sure. So I am a three times founder, entrepreneur. Um, I'm running my third company now. I sold both my previous two companies. I'm also a two times senior leader. I've been in larger organizations like 250 plus people, like a thousand plus people. And then I'm also an angel investor. I invest in about 200 plus companies at this point. And so kind of walking both sides of the aisle to some degree. Well, you've seen a lot then. Yeah. I mean, that many companies. I mean, your own plus the investing. Did you say 200? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Any big home runs out of that? So I've been doing this uh, with some volume for the past, well, like three years or something. I've had some like 10Xs in my, on my investments, some 40Xs on my investments. So I said, that's good. 
yeah, that's good. And I don't know if you know, but the the mechanics of how investing works is that you it's always a long-term type of effort. So you're looking at five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years down the road. And what you see first in like year one to four is the stuff that doesn't work. So that barely returns you any money, if if any. And so like uh, stuff that just fold and then like maybe one X's. And as you go into year three to five to six ish, then you start to see the, you know, five to 40, 50 X's return. And the big stuff usually happens farther down the road. So excited to see, you know, whether I make good choices or not in that sense. We'll see. That's great. What's that? What, what, like they're not overnight successes? No. That, that <laughs> Have you ever had an exist. overnight success? No, that thing, no, me neither. That kind of thing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like if anyone, if anyone talks about that anymore, but it's, I don't think that they exist at all. No, I don't either. I don't either. It, you know, overnight success after 20 years of pushing a rock uphill by yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes. Well, that's great. Well, tell me a little bit about uh, the SaaS companies you started. Yeah, for sure. So first one was called Peak One. It was essentially social market research back in the days when Facebook was a really young company and didn't really have a clear idea on which kind of business model to monetize the social network with. This was, to give you a sense, like a long time ago, 2009 to 2012. And uh, we ended up selling that one. Didn't make a lot of money. Lots of learnings, as they say. The second one, it was called Ad Espresso. It was Facebook advertising optimization for small and medium businesses and small and medium enterprises. That was 2013 through 2000 and early 2017-ish. That was a good one. It was a good run in the sense that we raised like 1.5-ish. Not, not a lot. And we ended up processing about a billion dollars in Facebook advertising budget through the platform, which made Adespresso one of the top five partners globally by volume back in the days for Facebook. No matter. Wow, that's really, really good. Yeah. And actually, the number one, my number of advertisers, because everyone else was focusing on a, a small number of big advertisers, and we were doing the opposite. And so it was fun because there was, you know, the Facebook ads manager and then Adespresso by global usage. We ended up selling that to Hootsuite, which is, of course, the largest social media management solution out there, Canadian company, pre-IPO, 1,000 people plus. Hence, you know, my stint at, as a senior leader at one of these organizations. And what was that like, making that transition from small to growing up, and then now you're part of a, a large organization? Painful, but very formative. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, particularly as a founder entrepreneur, I think you can either excel at being like a senior person at a large organization or continue down the path of entrepreneurship. It's very, very hard to be great at both. Yes. And so in that sense, I think like retention packages are kind of part of the mechanics of how acquisitions work, but they're not really designed to last. And so as you know, those come to an end, you see a lot of people that are like, great, this was fun, like lots of good learnings, but let's move on to the next thing. <laughs> right, next thing. Yeah, which I'm running now, Breadcrumbs, if you want to mention that as well. Yeah, tell me about Breadcrumbs. Yeah, just to give you a sense there, the idea is to surface hidden revenue opportunities through a no-code scoring engine that you can set up in minutes rather than weeks or months of work. 
really at the intersection between marketing and sales, you know, with a focus on revenue uh, operators, uh, as well as enabling kind of a modern conversion funnel. Um, and we can talk about that more if you want. Well, tell me a little bit more about the the relationship between marketing and sales. I mean, some places it's, it's you know, they work really closely together and other times sales points at marketing saying you're giving me terrible leads and marketing says, you know, sales, you can't close the stuff I give you. So yeah, most of the times, this was one of the surprising learnings that led us to actually want to start breadcrumbs. Most of the times it's kind of a frenemy type of a relationship. So they work together, but they kind of hate each other to a degree. And I think like surprisingly, this is the case for almost every company ever at almost any stage. And the reason for that, I think, is on two angles or because of two angles. One, it's a fundamentally different way of measuring things, right? If you think about marketing, it's a very quantitative type of approach. You know, how many MQLs did you generate this month from which sources? What was the cost attached to those? And from a sales perspective, it's a very qualitative way, which is, you know, how much, like, are these closing at a repeatable pace at a high enough ACV? Why? And uh, how do we get them to move through the funnel? And so there is a disconnect there already. And the other reason for, I think, uh, for this situation is really a gap with regards to tooling. And so now... As companies grow and mature, they have different tools that cater to different functions, right? And so there is kind of a siloed type of situation where marketing has its own tools, sales has its own tools, but there is no connective tissue in between. And so there is always this kind of fence like between the two sides that's hard to get, to kind of breach, right? And so bridging the gap there, like we were mentioning this revenue operator's focus that we have been having like one of the most interesting things that we have been observing which is now like it was kind of counterintuitive a few years ago now not so much you are seeing an emergence in revenue focused operators across the board right and they their objective is really just to make things work and have like a funnel that performs and behave in a predictable way and looks at things from start to finish, rather than, you know, getting to a certain point and then someone else has to step in and, you know, you kind of lose a little bit of track there, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, holistic process. Yeah. It's also, you know, one of the interesting things that we've been observing and that we often talk about is that if you if you think about it, it's also a fundamentally different time. Like uh, most of us as operators have been formed thinking about this traditional idea of a funnel, thinking about CRMs as sources of truth for the company. But none of those things are true anymore. Like to some degree, every department has its own source of truth. You know, product has its own, marketing has its own, and then sales has its own, and then ops has its own, and then success has its own, right? Right. And also the funnel, like this idea of a very linear conversion funnel from awareness into conversion, and then when the SaaS model came around, you could look into retention and expansion as well, the inverse, you know, hourglass type of situation. It's not really the case anymore. It's an oversimplification. Now you have multiple touch points and interactions that are fundamentally online rather than being offline across multiple devices. 
and people constantly going back and forth on their, you know, conversion buying journey and making decisions even before really touching base with anyone within the company. Right, right. That happens a lot. Yeah. Hence, you're seeing, you know, product-led as a narrative popping up, which we can touch on as well if you want. But it's like the core message there to me is it's different times with different paradigms as well as assumptions that go into how you think effectively about a conversion funnel that works. And some people, some companies, you know, are discovering this now for the first time or are starting to go down that path of, okay, how do I rethink my infrastructure as well as processes internally given these new paradigms? If you think about technology as well, more tools than ever before within a company, as well as more data available than ever before, as well as, you know, ever increasing customer expectations in terms of response speed and quality of those interactions. And so it's interesting. It is. Yeah, there's definitely a lot more to deal with now than there was even five or 10 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's exponentially more. Yeah. So just the, the disconnect between marketing and sales, you talked about, you know, qualitative versus quantitative. How do you bridge that gap? And, you know, are, are all leads created the same or are some leads better than others? They're not. Uh, ah, absolutely. I love that. Yeah. Not every lead is created equal. Not every dollar of revenue is created equal. We're actually having a conversation around this last week with an interesting group of people. So the way you bridge the gap, I can tell you how we think about it and how I've seen the most sophisticated operators think about it. And this is a little... That's really helpful. I mean, learning how to think is uh, is much better than just throwing out a, a quick tactic. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, how, do, how we think and how we process is really important. So historically, in a conversion funnel, you would have MQLs, which is marketing qualified leads that would translate into SQLs, right? Sales qualified leads, and then SALs, which is sales accepted leads, and then they would go through the conversion funnel to become either closed one or lost. And now you have this old product-led narrative, which is really a way to say, hey, you have also product data, so you should look into that. And that's all great, with the caveat that now the outcome of product-led as a solution or as a narrative is that you have PQLs as well, which is product-qualified leads. And so to some degree, that's another bucket that gets in the mix. And so one of the things that are interesting is that to some people that we've been talking about, or most people, this is to some degree confusing because it's like how... Like before MQLs would become SQLs and now you have PQLs as well. So what do you, like, how does, yeah, that how does it work? all fit together? What, yeah, oh, what do you soup. do with them? Like, do they <laughs> replace MQLs? Do they go along with them? Am I running a parallel funnel or do they go like after or before each other? And so the way we saw, again, going back to those most sophisticated operators is not about PQLs, MQLs, SQLs anymore per se. It's about taking elements out of marketing, your marketing stack, your product stack, your CRM to build this uh, like overarching, emerging quality across really two dimensions plus one, if you want. One, this idea of increasing or decreasing fit, right? Every company has an ICP, an ideal customer profile, and there is a description around it and there is you know, leads that are consistent with that idea or not. And there are various degrees of consistency. And that's one dimension. 
And then the second dimension is what's the level of activity slash engagement that these opportunities or customers are, are exhibiting throughout your online properties. And that's not only marketing anymore. It's also product, right? And so one of the examples that we often do, if you think about someone visiting your pricing page and then a second person converting from trial to paid and then a third person activating a new trial all belonging to the same company all happening in the same month that would be a clear upsell or expansion opportunity for most organizations right except most organizations cannot really detect that behavior when it's really happening because each and every one of the data points that are necessary for that sit in different repositories right that's true and so one question becomes Okay, if, if that's the state, how do you enable the underlying tech infrastructure to surface the right behavior at the right time so that either your team can engage or from a programmatic perspective, you can trigger the right reactions that are the most appropriate to that specific type of situation? How do you know what the right action is in each of those situations? So... That goes back to the stages of the buyer's journey, right? To some degree, there are those are still valid. It's just a dramatically more complex type of journey on one side, as well as tech stack and data that you can feed into this. And so you can have people that are, you know, active but not really in your ICP. That might be, you know, an investigation area for you because if you have like a high representation of people that are wanting to engage with you, even if you don't necessarily care about them, why is it even happening in the first place, right? And then you might have people that are very active with you and you do care about them. And so they are ready for prime time and, you know, sales should be all over them because the fact that they are active today doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be active tomorrow in the same way. Right. And then you have people that you do care about, but are not high activity just yet. And so in that sense, or for that cohort or cluster, most of the companies, they put in place dedicated drip email flows and or in product triggers to stimulate that behavior that you want to see, which is consistent with your definition of ICP so that they can jump on the high engagement, high fit bucket and engage with your team, if that makes sense. Yes, yes, it does. Yeah. So how do product-led companies, how are they different and how are you seeing that transition? Yeah, that's a good question. So product-led is interesting. The whole story is less narrative around product-led is bottom-up, a self-serve SaaS model that at some point translates into a sales-assisted commercial motion, right? And they are different in the sense that they tend to front-load engagement through product and use that as a predictive signal for other things that they might happen. In that sense, one of the things that we have been talking about over and over again is okay, operators these days are talking about product-led and you will hear different flavors. You will hear product-led growth. You will hear product-led sales. You will hear product-led revenue. So different flavors, effectively the same thing. And one of the questions that operators in more mature or later stage type of companies or different type of industries are asking is like, does every company need to be a product-led company? 
And the answer to me is not necessarily. Product-led requires a big investment up front and requires product to be front and center and requires a business model that starts low and then has an expansion potential over time. And that's not necessarily like every single business that exists. And so a better framework for me that I've been developing over time is more than the question, should my company be a product-led company or not, is thinking about share of revenue. And if you think about share of revenue, you will discover or realize that maybe your company can have a product-led share of revenue and still be marketing-led and sales-led as well. And the reality is that even for the companies that are product-led or talk about themselves as product-led, if you double-click on what the share of revenue that's really product-led, it's lower than you would expect because they too recognize that you know product-led has a value, but at some point there has to be like a marketing-led motion and a sales-led motion if you want to evolve into a, like a more mature, bigger type of company. Right. They all have to work together. It's They're not mutually exclusive. But it, it's really cool to talk about being product-led or, or saying, you know, this is the direction that we're going. Absolutely but, right. Uh, yes. It, it does take all of them. Yes. That's great. Armando, we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back after a quick sponsor message. Ever feel like you're in uncharted waters? Wish there was a checklist or clear path to follow for your stage of growth. We are one. Champion Leadership Group helps SaaS founders scale from 1 million to 10 million to 20 million and beyond. As we do it, we help founders like you properly position your company for raising capital and strategic exit when the time is right for you. Do you know that only one in 40,000 companies grows to 10 million in revenue? The rest stay small or die along the trail. But we're here to change that. Building a business is treacherous if you go alone. Instead, travel with experienced SaaS founders and expert guides who help chart your course to consistent results and provide support every step of the way. Create your free growth map today at championleadership.com. And welcome back to SaaS Fuel. My guest is Armando Biondi, three-time founder and investor in over 200 SaaS companies. And uh, we're talking about uh, past experiences and uh, and you know building your first few companies, what are the the big lessons that you learned out of that that you've been able to bring forward? Great question. One one big lesson is around not surprisingly the importance of the alignment between the different functions within organizations and how the companies that win very rarely do it just because the product is great. One of the things that I've been learning, which is to some degree counterintuitive, is that the best product doesn't necessarily win, right? It's uh, the combination of product and go-to-market. And most of the times, a great go-to-market with an okay product will do better than a great product with an okay or not so great go-to-market. And so that's one of the things that it was kind of a discovery to some degree. And one of the things that we stumbled on with Adespresso particularly, and we are thinking through with regards to breadcrumbs as well. So focus on go-to-market, focus on how to get out there and be visible and findable by your ICP or the customers that you're trying to attract. It's really key. Let me 
think. Another learning with regards to breadcrumbs, I think, which is interesting, is the fact that, you know, three times founder, you would think that you know most of the things that you know, that you have to know. <laughs> I don't. And I was like, uh, yeah, I got this. It's my third company. Like, I, I know everything that I need to get started with. And the reality is that some things are the same. Some things rhyme. Some things are exactly the opposite. I really like that. Yeah. That's really good. And so understanding like you're, it's like one of the challenges that you have to juggle yourself like through is, okay, which is which, right? Which are the things that you can rely on, that you can trust on your past experiences? Which are the things that you know, are going to be similar, but not exactly the same? And then there is a category of things that if you tend to replicate exactly, you might actually be ending, you know, arming the current uh, venture. And so in that sense, that was kind of a relearning, a rediscovery for this last initiative. The third key learning, I would argue, is this constant struggle between wanting stuff to go faster, everything, pretty much, uh, this tension to, uh, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Can we move <laughs> every to the next day, stage? Every day. Yeah. And things learning, like needing time to mature and evolve. And that was one of the learnings from Adespresso, which I found myself like relearning or rediscovering with breadcrumbs. You know, the, the example that I often do in this sense is like, if you think about planting a tree or like a little plant and wanting it to grow, if you give it too much water or too much sun, you will either drown or, you know, be burned out. And you need to give it the right amount of water and the right amount of time of sun, and then a lot of time for this thing to mature into like a big tree. And so that's a good analogy. I like that. Similar to the start of a journey to some degree. Yeah. And then maybe the fourth one, last one on this side, I would mention just the importance of alignment between the team and really focus and clarity, right? Everything in the startup journey, but in general, running a business is about being intentional and deliberate on where to apply focus and effort. And every decision implies, you know, opportunity cost around things that you will not be doing. And so how do you navigate that? And how do you make, you know, peace with your brain on one side and all the, like, so many opportunities that you could go after, right. but you don't have either the time or the resources? Or how do you start taking baby steps in that direction in a way that you can execute right now? And if things go accordingly to plan, it will enable kind of a stepping stone to a bigger, broader type of conversation. Well, you're exactly right. Every decision you make, there's opportunity cost. If you're passing on opportunities to yeah. to pursue some, how do you make those decisions and how do you know if they're the, the right decisions? Yeah, well, I think the guiding north star there should be the idea of product market fit, right? Is there a feedback loop with regards to customer? Are you providing value to someone in a way that they are willing to pay something in exchange for it. That's really it. And one of the things that in that sense we also have been rediscovering is that most people, as but like a lot of people, tend to overcomplicate things and tend to over-engineer, overbuild, and uh, 
think that everything else would follow. Doesn't I thought this, that was only our problem. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's a constant struggle for us as well. <laughs> I think every company out there, it just it feels like it, it's just us sometimes. Yeah. Over-engineer, over-build. And like you build, 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 and then you're like, uh, where is that option? Like, uh, it's there, but like, why is not more? Why it's not more? <laughs> right? Or, yeah. And so, in that sense, going back to uh, pacing as well as, you know, putting yourself out there and having that feedback loop and then constant conversation with regards to the value that you're providing, the value that you're able to capture. Yeah. So with your own companies, how do you, and the ones you invest in as well, how do you know if there's product market fit or not? Traction. If there is traction, uh, if there is growth, most likely there is some level of product market fit. And product market fit is a very elusive concept in the sense that it changes over time. Like the degree to which you can have product market fit can change over time, not only based on things that you do, but also based on competitors and or the market and or customers, right? And so like it's kind of a multi-variable type of equation, but generally it does come down to the fact that whether like if you're able to grow and have a repeatable, measurable progress there, that most likely correlates with some level of product market fit. And if you don't, most likely that correlates with the fact that you're not there yet. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So as you're looking at the companies to invest, in, I mean, 200 is a lot. So I mean, if if you've invested in 200, you've probably looked at at 10 times that many. If not more, probably yeah. 20 times. Yeah. <laughs> How do you make those decisions? What are the the key metrics you're looking at? What are the things you're looking for in the companies that you invest in? Yeah, it's generally the intersection between a few things. So number one, I like to see a founder with a background that's consistent with the company is building. Two, I like to see some interesting insight on why things that exist in a certain way could be better in some other certain way that the founder has. And then some market validation, going back to the product market fit conversation and the traction conversation. So some traction there, some revenue. And last, the potential for this thing to be big, right? So for the market to grow or for the the founder to capture something in, in this evolution that they are thinking about that goes in that direction. Usually when I see those things, I... I get excited. It's most likely than not. Uh, it's going to be something that I'm going to look into thoroughly. And then with regards to industry, usually B2B, it's kind of my bread and butter because I know everything about it. And then e-com, marketplaces, I also frequently invest there. Rarely when it comes to hardware or like frontier tech or blockchain these days or biotech. Don't know enough or I know that hard and you need to have, you know, a specific skill set and, and knowledge that I don't feel I, it's my strong suit. So That's smart. That's actually where I've been burned is going into places that, that I know enough to be dangerous. Yeah. And that you come out the other side and you go, yeah, I didn't, I really didn't know nearly enough to make that decision. 
Yeah, and also because at the end of the day, like one of the interesting things that was surprising to me when I started doing like some more investing at volume is there is a high, there are waves and there are things that get in fashion and then go out of fashion like in terms of trends or, and when that happens, you see like three, five, 10, 15 companies that look more or less the same get started more or less at the same time with founder with more or less the same background. And so it's like, uh, all right, which one should I pick? And kind of becomes a conversation around, do you have a sense around which founder will have a better shot and whether or not, like which type of market are they actually going after, whether it's going to be big or not, and whether it can sustain like two or three winners, you know, in that space. And then they will like compete with each other pretty much to, to win the market. Yeah. I think that's really interesting because we have seen that multiple times where an industry, I mean, sometimes even really boring industries. Yeah. Nothing happens for years. And then all of a sudden there are three or four startups that right around the same time with the same kind of idea. Yeah. Turns the entire industry on its head. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's very common, surprisingly common. And also, like, there is surprisingly little differentiation between each and every one of these companies. They kind of look more or less the same. Right. And so, it's in that sense, it's interesting. It is. So, if you were going to start a company today in the, the SaaS space, B2B SaaS, what, uh, what do you think is in fashion or what do you think the next trends are? Uh, what I think is in fashion, I would say fintech or anything fintech related these days, still in fashion. It was maybe more last year, but still the case. When it comes to what I think is interesting to me, or if I started today, it would go along the lines of the reason why I started Breckrams a couple of years ago. And specifically, one of the things that I get very excited about is products that solve broken processes within organizations that sit at the intersection between different functions. So this thing, and for breadcrumbs is marketing and sales, and there's, you know, revenue, acceleration, scoring type of thing. But the reality is that there are friction points between product and success, between product and ops, between success and ops, right? Or finance and something else. And so these things in most organizations so far have been solved through people. So by hiring people that do this relatively repetitive type of tasks, like most of the times can be automated, but haven't just yet. And so what companies end up doing, either hire people to solve these gaps or start to build something internally that end up looking more or less the same all the time. Right, And it's non-core to anyone. If you think back to Stripe back in the days, it was an example of that. Right Before Stripe, every company would have to build their own you know, payment processing infrastructure. And it was more or less the same. And then Stripe came along and said, wait a second, stop reinventing the, the wheel. We'll build this for everyone else, better than everyone else. And you guys would pay us a fee for that. Right, Ended up being you know, not a shitty story. So... I think there are more opportunities like this ones hidden like within the organizational you know infrastructure to some degree of more mature companies and so anything that works along those lines is interesting to me. So how have you led 
teams and how, what kind of a leader do you consider yourself? So, so far I led team up to 50 people, big believer on empowerment and OKRs as a way to align the organization. And I, yeah, I tend to obsess on the stuff that's not working and to acknowledge the stuff that's working so that we can, you know, move on to solving the next bottleneck. And then really focusing on working with the best people that I can find that are excited about, you know, something along the lines of what I want to work on. And in that sense, again, breadcrumbs is a good example. The founder team there is Massimo and myself, which were, we were the founders of Ad Espresso back in the days. And then we added That's great. Gary Amaral, which was at Hootsuite as well. We got to know him after we sold Ad Espresso to Hootsuite. And he was the one running what breadcrumbs does today as a process within Hootsuite. Okay. And the funny thing is that after doing this at Hootsuite, he left and went to Chargeify, ended up doing the same all over again once more. And after doing this at Chargeify, he was moving on again to go to another company. When we started having this conversation, I was like, stop doing this as a process. Let's try and and do this as a product and see where it goes. And we end up, you know, deciding to join forces there. That's great. It's, it's interesting how some people bring people from their past onto the, the next venture and the next venture. And so you find great people and, and do cool things with them on an ongoing basis. Yeah. when there is, you know, a good alignment with regards to the values and the work ethics. And there is good cl- complementarity when it comes to background and skill sets. That's usually a very good combination. That's good. Uh, in competitive market right now, how have you built your team for breadcrumbs? How do you attract talent? It's interesting. <laughs> it's a very dynamic market these days. We have part of the team which is in Italy, part of the team that's in Canada, and part of the team that's in the US. And we're really tapping into talent pools that we know. We're still a relatively small organization. Breadcrumbs is a team of 20-ish, just shy of that. And so it's mostly still the stage where it's people that we knew from past experiences that we wanted to work again with in this new one. That's nice. Yeah, I think we're getting to the point maybe for the next. This will last probably for another five-ish hires. And then we'll need to start expanding that approach as we you know, think about growing further the organization. But that's going to be a problem for, for the future. It's a very competitive market these days, very dynamic one. I thought I'm curious to see how it's going to evolve later this year when, you know, pretty much every company will start to want uh, employees back and things will kind of come down to some degree, I think. Well, if you're going to give somebody in uh, an early stage founder advice on uh, what to do, or what to expect, you know, what to write next steps to take, what would that advice be? Well, it depends on where they are. What's the current challenge that they are solving for? Uh, like very, very early stage is very different from a company of like three people, very different from like 15 people, very different from 50, very different from 200. Let's say maybe 10 or 15 and, uh, you know, one or two million in revenue. Okay. It's always about how do you go to that next milestone as fast and as effectively as possible so if you're one to two the next milestone is 10 ish right and one to two usually implies that there is some product market fit there there is some repeatability there and so it's more around how do you start 
putting fuel to the fire to some degree and getting more of those customers that have been working with and how do you make sure that they are happy and are getting the value that they are looking for. Yeah, one to 10 is mostly how do more of the same as fast and as effectively as you can. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Like focus, 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 more of the same. Let's get more customers like the ones that we are seeing happy with the product. And how do we do we reach them? And how do we make this a repeatable, scalable process? That's really important. Repeatable, scalable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not doing things uh, as a one-off, but uh, you know, continuing to build in something. Yeah, which is different from very early. Very early. If you're sub one million, then scalable is not should not be a topic. Like right, right. Years, right. Yeah, it doesn't make any difference until you get that product market fit, and then you you start getting some traction. Yeah, get that repeatability. Get you know, identify your ICP. Get a good definition of idea, customer profile. Start you know, fine tuning that. Validate the business model. Yeah, different stages, different challenges, and different milestones of that. Absolutely. Well, very good. Well, what is one question that I haven't asked that I should have? Well, we didn't talk about M&A too much. That's always a conversation with when it comes to founders. They are like very, very curious about, okay, how to think about this? Or like, uh, how does it work? Okay. Well, I'll ask that one then. Yeah. I like that. It's one of those things that are not very well documented. Maybe the last of the things that when it comes to startups and early stage companies that it's not very well documented, which... Makes sense because it's always a high stake, high confidentiality type of conversation. And there is a lot of time pressure there. And so there are a lot of question marks and most of the leverage is on the acquiring company rather than the company that is being acquired. The, The thing that I would recommend most founders thinking about is always around opportunity cost versus time and risk and work adjust. Return and that's like mouthful, and there is a lot packed in that sentence. But the net net is that there is there are always trade offs to decisions, right? And leaving a conversation that could be something on the table because it's not what you had in mind might not necessarily be the smart move there. One of the stats, and again, this is like a broader conversation that we could go down, but. Most founders have this idea of the billion-dollar company in mind, right? They start with the go big or go home type of mentality, partially because the investors, you know, ask them to, but partially because the press also talk about that stuff all the time. But there are a few things that are not as well known, and I often mention them or find myself mentioning them, particularly number one around the cost of doing a billion-dollar-plus company. So on average, to make a billion-dollar-plus company, you need to raise $250 million plus as a founder. You need to take nine-plus years. And even when you do raise the capital and do take the time, most founders end up with high single digit. So like 5 to 9% of the company. And so contrast that with M&As, there are about 2,000, maybe 2,500 transactions per year in tech in the U.S., Five out of six are under 100 millions. And so on the flip side, if you have like 40% of the company and you take three to four years to get to that 
level to have a conversation around 100 million ish, you know, market value. It's kind of the same as the billion dollar, you know, plus outcome like nine years after and 250 millions after by having like 4% of the company. That makes a lot of sense. And so in that sense, there are a lot of more acquirers that could explore that idea for like a company in that market valuation range. And that's not necessarily a failure. Most founders will think about it as like giving up. But it's really not not the case. And it's particularly in some cases when there is some risk around execution or market or maybe the company is not profitable yet. Those are all things that should go in the conversation. And one of the things that founders always struggle with when it comes to this type of situations is the fact that it's a very emotional, very high stakes type of conversation, right? If you think about, you know, for most people, Selling a car or selling a house, it's already kind of a big deal. And you have like a few tens of thousands of dollars on one side, a few hundreds of thousands of dollars on the other, maybe a million something. And here we're talking of tens of millions, if not maybe a hundred millions, right? And so it's... Right. For most people, the single biggest transaction that they will do in their entire professional life, plus it's their baby, it's their company, right? And so yes, in that yes. sense, it's... Uh, but again, in- interesting conversations, maybe to double click on some other time. So how do you know when it's time? Is it, uh, is it just when somebody makes an offer or, you know? Uh, no. So an offer, it's a signal that there is something in the market going on for which your type of company is appealing and palatable to a category of operators. And so it should open up the conversation. If you have someone reaching out, pro- proposing you to have that conversation, you should take that as a signal that there might be more people interested in having that conversation. But on the flip side, going back to that time, risk, work, adjust, return, and opportunity cost, the conversation to me should also include elements of, okay, where are we today? How clear is the path to 10xing where we are? in the next three years-ish, what risks are we taking? It might be executional risk, it might be product risk, it might be market risk, it might be a competitor coming in and or being bought by a bigger company. Like, how would that change the conversation, right? And what would be the cost of that additional growth? Do you need to raise more capital for that? Like, what kind of investment are you talking about? And so in some cases it might be more interesting to decide and join a bigger organization which would have those kind of resources and you know materialize that upside and you participating on it as part of that larger organization and then moving on. Oh, that's a great answer. Yeah. A lot to think about as a founder and, and what's next. Yeah, exactly. So Armando, where can we find out more about you and about Breadcrumbs Online? I'm everywhere online, so LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and then Armando at Breadcrumbs.io. It's my email if you want to reach out. And of course, Breadcrumbs.io is the website. So check it out. Excellent. And we will link all of those in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was a fun chat. Absolutely. It was great. My guest today, Armando Biondi. And it's a great talking with you. My pleasure. Thanks for being on SAS Fuel. Thanks again to Armando for coming on the show and sharing your insights and resources. You can learn more about Armando and Breadcrumbs at breadcrumbs.io. And of course, check them out on all social media as well. 
You know, success leaves clues. And if you want to find hidden revenue in your business and unlock new growth potential, then follow the trail with breadcrumbs.io. As always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. You know, in the same way that Armando and I met, check out SaaS Founder Meetups, both virtually and in person at championleadership.com. As a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. I'll read these on a future episode, or you can leave comments, feedback, or just let me know you're out there by calling 903-SASFUEL and leave a message. I'd love to play that on the show as well. We'll tune in next week for our conversation with April Lamont. April is a four-time founder, and her current venture is a SaaS offering that bridges real-world neighborhoods into online communities to create meaningful connections. So check it out next week. And until we meet again, enjoy the journey.